0: You're listening to the Doc Lounge Podcast. This is a place for candid conversations with healthcare industry's top physicians, executives, and thought leaders. This podcast is made possible by Pacific Companies, your trusted advisor in physician recruitment. I am your host, Summer Gilbert, and I am the Director of Marketing and Branding here at Pacific Companies. Today is an exciting day because it's our first episode of our new Access to Care series. And for the series, we talk about the millions of Americans that are living in vulnerable, rural, and urban communities. Their hospital is super important and often their only source of health care. And as transformation in the hospital and even the healthcare care field continues, some communities may still be at risk of losing that access to care and the opportunities and even the resources they need to improve and maintain their health. And throughout this series, we're gonna be talking to rural health systems and also physicians who practice in these underserved regions so that we can get a deeper understanding of what they are doing to make sure that the communities that they serve have the access to the primary and also the specialty care that they may need. I'm actually sitting this episode out, and our Pacific Company COO, John Polk, is hosting. He has Dr. Mark Dowell on the episode, who is extremely versed in this topic. I'm excited for you guys to hear it. Let's get started.
1: Well, here we are with Doc Lounge Podcast, and I am honored and privileged to have the opportunity to speak with, uh, and Mark, I'm going to go ahead and call you a friend, Dr. Mark Dowell, uh, double board certified infectious disease physician uh in casper wyoming with rocky mountain infectious disease mark how are
2: you i'm doing great thanks john
1: yeah well it's good to it's good to talk to you again i know we catch up once in a while but you know i was trying to put this together you and i have known one another now uh professionally going back for almost 30 years
2: is that right yes well at least the mid 90s yeah
1: yeah yeah i think shortly after you relocated to wyoming um, uh, that's just remarkable. We've had a lot of opportunity to work together and, and you've been a, a confidant in a number of things and you know today what I'd, I was hoping we could do, Mark was talk a little bit about you know your perspective on access to care and and as I mentioned that, it occurred to me after some conversation previous to this that it, for access to care has more than one dimension to it and, and in one instance we're talking about what your practice, does for access to care, but also the way it affects the community as a whole there in the Toronto County, Casper, Wyoming, uh, access to care with your, respect to your patients. But I thought we'd start real quick. just give us a quick summary of, of what your practice is compiled, or you know what does what, what it entail? What's in your practice as far as providers and such?
2: Well, by way of background I, and briefly, I came up to Wyoming in December of 1992 as the first full-time infectious disease doc in the history of Wyoming, which nice. I didn't know I didn't know at that time. Um, I don't know if that's good or bad, but you know, I, I started the practice myself, a nurse and a front office person that actually didn't know anything about insurance filing until I found out later. And over the years, recruited a couple of docs with your help, they went elsewhere, and then started to develop a stable of providers. And we now have four full-time board-certified infectious disease docs. We have a half-time infectious disease doc who's near retirement. A PA that's been with us 10 years and a nurse practitioner 12 years, all of this straightforward, 100% infectious disease care.
1: I think that's remarkable. You talk about a county that's maybe got, what, 65,000 people, and you have four and a half FTEs, board-certified infectious disease physicians. And I mean, in a, in a, in a population for the state of Wyoming, that's, what, barely half a million people. And, and, and that's, a, that's a good place to start off with respect to access to care. You know, I know there's probably communities out there that have even more than, than what you have as far as the population within the county that don't have a single infectious disease physician. So you know, with respect to that, Mark, what is it that generates that level of access to support four and a half full-time FTEs?
2: Well, part of it is you hope that you know what you're doing and you, you create a track record that says, you can count on me to take care of your patient You can turn over the infection management to me or my team and you know it's going to be followed through start to finish. And you can count on us communicating with you and getting the best outcome we can for your patient. So that's part of it. But when I started, I said, I need to build a practice. I can't do this by myself. I was on call on and off for 10 years straight, seven days a week, and it it beat me into the ground. So I said, well, what can I do to get outside into Toronto County because these little towns don't have access to guys like me? And how do I build those relationships and how does it benefit the state? And how do I blaze that trail and set an example? So I started, I said, okay, where are two places that are big enough to support a full day clinic? And I identified one place that was two hours west and one place that was two hours north.
1: Okay. Gillette and Riverton, I suspect.
2: Right. Well, how do I get people to send me patients? And I said, well, back then anyway, it's go up there, give lectures because they're starving for CME and knowledge and they don't know much about my field when you really get down to it. And so shake hands, make yourself available, make yourself available for phone calls and realize at the beginning, you're not going to be seeing a lot of patients. Now, back then, they the hospital flew me to some of these clinics, but then I started driving because the flights in Wyoming were incredibly bumpy, even 30, 45 minutes. I really thought I was in a popcorn machine. And what I did was I said, I'll see anybody. And that's been philosophy from day one. If your patient crawls out from a rock, if they're homeless, whatever it is, we'll see them. The model back then was... We see patients on referral because I didn't want docs to think that I was stealing their patients, you know, And, and so it's prove yourself, but let them know you're not trying to compete with them at any level. And that's kind of between the lectures, the availability, showing them, you know what you're doing, you improve access to care in towns that don't have anything like this because what you found up until that time is people still had serious infections before we started going to these places but physicians didn't know all about the nuances and the the tricky management and patients outcomes were different they were missing stuff they were using antibiotics you know not the best ways and so they also will learn from you when you go out there and help other people and it sounds sort of fluffy but really when it comes down to it if they learn how to use the antibiotics differently they help somebody else and when you say i'm going to see anybody irrespective of ability to pay i mean you have to pay the bills i mean you've got to practice but they know that and they send you the insured patients but they also know that they never have to worry about it. If their patient needs you, they know you'll see them and they're not gonna hit a wall trying to get the patient into your practice. And that model, although you lose some money on those patients, the big picture is you get the volume and the reputation and everything falls into place after that. And it got so busy that I would have full clinics twice a month in these towns by myself. And I would be getting up and starting at eight o'clock and finishing at five and driving two hours on either side of that and still trying to cover a hospital back home. But I hired a PA, Bruce, who helped cover some of that for me. And as time went on, we just grew and grew. And that access to care, those docs, depend on us now and they call us early instead of late at the beginning when you're teaching a state how to use your specialty what happens is the patient's been messed with for sometimes months and so you're trying to dig out of a bad outcome because they didn't have the care maybe that could have helped them more but then you see this whole thing about care change because then you're called early and if anybody's gonna mess it up, you want it to be you. You want it to be your group and not sitting there second-guessing somebody. So there's this fine line between saying, here, I'm gonna educate you, doctor, about how you might do it next time and when to call me without hurting their feelings or making them feel stupid. And that's almost an art as a consultant.
1: It was interesting, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's a model I've heard espoused in, in other areas, but. Uh, as far as I'm concerned you guys pretty much have a kind of a gold standard in my book as far as outreach and it you know for some of our listeners they might go well wait wait you got four and a half infectious disease physicians for a population of maybe half a million uh, you've explained some of that but you know somebody who may not know any know any better would say well is there a high incidents of epidemiology pathology there in wyoming where there's a greater uh, likelihood that somebody's going to have an infectious disease or is it because of the outreach of the education that you've conducted so far over these years
2: well it's a little bit of both sometimes a minority of things are missed and so they they have us to actually tell them that yeah there's an active infection there but when it really comes down to it it's How you set your practice up to be reliable and to expand your services. You know, we train, and and it comes down to the other model is now we have a hospitalist model across the country, all right? So you have to build relationships with those people. And in the old days, they were private docs coming into the hospital all the time. So what you did with them is you built those one-on-one relationships and showed them that you had their backs. And that if they put a person in the hospital, you're gonna see them in the clinic after they go home. They've got built-in care, so that physician does not have to worry about that. We carried that over to the hospitalist model. If you have patients with bloodstream infections, if you've got patients with fever and you don't know why, if you're just uncomfortable with the case, call us and then we'll see them. And if they don't need us after they go home, that's fine. But otherwise they can count on us seeing them in the office. So what you've done is you've automatically populated your practice from hospitalized patients. You've, If you make yourself available and these small hospitals need to transfer sick patients to your hospital, then you can also see them in your clinics, your outreach clinics, which also helps. And then it brings into telemedicine as well, which is a different you know, topic that's really changed the game a little bit in terms of outreach. And then you also have the patients that are generated to your practice on an outpatient basis. So let's say somebody comes in with a foot infection. Well, the ER season, who's gonna see them? After that, does their primary want to see them? Or would they like the infectious disease guy to cost effectively manage it? So those come our way. And so when you build it like that, you can support multiple providers. A
1: point of context here. So, in addition to uh, the two communities that you referenced earlier, how many other communities are you actively conducting outpatient or outreach clinics
2: in? We have done, we have actually uh, also participated in clinics in Douglas on a couple of occasions. We used to go down near the Utah border when the hospital would fly us to Rock Springs, which is on the way to Salt Lake City. But those became impractical. And part of the thing about relationship building is back then the docs stayed put. And we're there in these communities for 20, 30 years. Medicine's changed. A lot of these docs come in for three or four years and leave. And so when you build these relationships and these referral patterns, they change now much more quickly. Then you're finding yourself having to redo this again and again and again. And I think it makes for more work, but also I think you lose some business that way. So we have to keep adjusting this, re-educating the new providers, and now there are a lot more nurse practitioners than there used to be in terms of uh, out there in practice, in primary care. So you have to, they're trained differently, you build those relationships as well. It didn't used to be that way, be a physician with or without a PA. So in addition to the primary
1: care providers, including advanced practice providers, Are you also cultivating, I presume so, uh, referrals from maybe, say, an oncologist or an orthopedic surgeon or other subspecialists that also might be a reliable referral source in the process of this?
2: Every day. Every day. We have tight relationships with our orthopedic surgeons. We do so much with bone and joint infections and infections in diabetics, oncology, you got high risk patients. They will call us and say, we've got a patient on chemo. That's got a fever today. And we don't know where it's coming from. Can you see them emergently? So one of the things they've also counted on is we see the sickest people in an office in the state, the most complicated stuff. These guys can call us and we'll do everything we can to get them in the same day, especially if they're sick. Um, And, you know, one thing we haven't talked about, which we've publicized, but just one-on-one, our ability to do intravenous antibiotics outpatient. So patients need IV antibiotics, depending on their insurance payer. They can either do it at home or if they're Medicare, they actually have to come into the office and get their infusion to get Medicare to pay for it. And that we pay nurses to be available seven days a week during the morning, you know, Saturday and Sunday to get the IV antibiotics for our Medicare and our Medicaid patients. And we said, we're never gonna turn down a patient because of their pay source. And we keep more patients out of the hospital by doing this. It does generate good income for the practice. It does allow us to have extra providers. But we also went to the hospital and said, look, you've got indigent patients that need IV antibiotics and they don't don't know where to go on weekends. They go to the ER and they sit there for five hours. They occupy beds that you need. Why don't we set up some kind of contract so that we'll totally manage the patients that have no payer source that are on intravenous antibiotics. And you just pay us Medicare rates to cover our costs And we'll follow them in our clinic, we'll take care of them, and we'll save hospitalizations, we'll get them out of there quicker. It's very costly for a hospital to bring in self pay patients and pay nurses to find them on the floor and give them their antibiotics on Saturday and Sunday. So we bring our indigent patients in Saturday and Sunday, and I don't mean indigent in that sense, just they don't have a payer source. They can be from anywhere. We treat them like we do everybody else, everybody's IVM box, same approach. And we keep them from being readmitted more frequently. They have a place to go, they know where to call. So that model has also helped us grow, not financially, but directly, but reputation wise, because they can always count on us seeing whomever and good things happen to you when you do that both emotionally as a physician but and for the community but they know where to go to get help for people that need it and that only helps you in terms of your business model as well
1: absolutely I can imagine that you know i have got to ask you this <clears throat> you know the model that you've described I you know it's it's easy to understand how that might work in the Intermountain West and in certain regions of the western u.s but you know there's other parts of the country where the distances between places is not so great i i I suspect you've got patients and not an unusual occurrence are driving two three maybe even four or five hours for care to casper but is this a kind of a model that might work in another market based on what you're doing I, i suspect the answer to that is probably yes
2: yeah, it might not be quite as successful because of competition and because of managed care. But the model itself would work anywhere, in my opinion. And yes, we do have patients drive four hours to see us and sometimes every week. It depends on what the patient needs. In Wyoming, people know, hey, I don't have specialists like this in my little town of a thousand. I'm willing to go wherever I have to go to get my care and I don't want to have to go to Denver and I don't want to have to go up to Rapid City, South Dakota because they know they're going to get state-of-the-art care here. No, you're right. And one thing I was talking to you about before we went on the air was had to do with changing your models as you go and So it used to be that we would depend upon people to refer us, the patients. I mentioned that earlier, but I changed that to involve, to really include anybody that called our office with an infection issue could get in and see us without a referral now, because we're short of primary care and patients don't know where to go. And so, They're ending up in your ER for things that don't need to be in an ER. So it's cost effective for the community. It's a safety net. Patients will get better care this way. And again, people in healthcare notice what you're doing. They notice that you're pitching in. They send you the patients they should send you and realize maybe they should send you the patient that's insured that they might be able to manage themselves that they called you about twice for free advice to begin with and they say well we need to be fair to these guys cuz they're giving us all this free advice and they're not seeing the patient and making sure that it's the right advice so we're going to send it to them
0: so I they get imagine. paid
2: for, so we get paid for our time because i get 10 calls a day from across the state we're a regional practice you know and it's changed now with telehealth well, I wanted to ask you
1: about telehealth, but before we move to that, I wanted to ask you, how long have you, has it been since you've opened up the practice to patients without a referral? And uh, how are you getting the word out to that population at large that, hey, you know, you don't need to go wait in the, in the ED for 45 minutes to be seen for something that they're not really well-equipped to handle, and they're all going to do is send you over here anyway. But how do you get that word
2: out? Well, you don't want to look cheesy. You don't want to look like you're trolling for business because that's not how I want to be known. So you talk to all the entry points in your in your in your town. So you talk to the homeless clinic. You talk to the family practice residency program. You talk to um, you talk to the ER. You let people know that you're out there. And our reputation, you know, COVID or not is, is out there known by the public anyway, and a lot of word of mouth stuff. And then we would just get cold calls all the time. I have a problem with my foot. I think it's infected. Will you see me? And in the past, we'd say, you really need a referral. But maybe three years ago, we said, there's a real unmet need here. And we're going to do this as well. And it also keeps your volumes up. And it's a, different, it's a different model than if you're in managed care, but there's no question that managed care tracks all the number of patients you see and all this stuff. Well, if you had a model like ours, it said, we'll see every discharged patient with an infection that we've seen in the hospital in our clinics, then managed care, you would be a hero, as opposed to what happens in a lot of managed care where they put the patient back in the hands of the primary care provider out of the hospital and the infectious disease doctors don't see him in the office. And well, this, that's, that's not a good model to me.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it's, it's uh, you've enabled the system there in Natrona County and Wyoming at large to skew towards prevention as opposed to disease management in some small way.
2: Oh, definitely. And, About the telehealth real quick. So what COVID brought out as well is what can we do with telehealth that makes sense? So what we said was our clinics are so full out in these small communities that if we get a referral, we want the patient to come down to see us the first time because we have to lay hands on them. We have to do a really good, thorough physical. We have to let them get to know us. And then after that, if it's, let's say we're going out to an outreach clinic every other week, then what we'll do is we'll see them on the outreach clinic the next time we're there, but we see them once a week, let's say they're on intravenous antibiotics, we see them once a week. That week when we're not up there, we'll do it via telehealth. And that way we can sit there and, and follow them all the way around and, and it works out really well. Um, We're even looking at maybe doing telehealth in conjunction with hospitals in the state to help them with their inpatients that are sick and infected. Instead of them just calling us on the phone and giving us a short story and we don't eyeball the patient or anything and hoping we give the right advice, we're actually able to visualize the patient in their beds with the doctor there and talk about the case right then. And that's something we're working on right now. It'd be like a tele-inpatient consultation. Um, I'm sure that's being done, yeah. Yeah, you don't see telehealth
1: replacing the, the need for physical contact or outreach, but it really more or less supplements it. it, it as you've just described, it would enable you br- really to broaden the reach uh, your ability to, to help this, the population in the state of Wyoming?
2: No question. And, you know, we don't want any providers to get lazy, get on a, a Zoom, see a patient via telehealth, never do physicals on them, and say that's good medicine. You, it, it's easy to fall in the trap of, well, I'll just see them over the phone or over Zoom. You've got to have the combination where it's safe for the person or you you miss stuff all the time. And I think the te- temptation for some people is going to be, well, I don't want to go into the doctor when I can just do it over a computer or the doctor sometimes saying, you know, I can probably do this via telehealth and that way I don't have to go. I don't, you know, have to bring them into the office. Got to be really careful, especially in our field as a specialist and a consultant that we're doing it the exact way we need to do it. And if it inconveniences the patient or us, so be it.
1: Well, at least initially, yeah, you would think that you need eyes on real. uh, And I imagine in many instances part of your population is not particularly well served by high-speed broadband internet. So Wow, this is this is uh, fascinating stuff with respect to access. Uh, what else could you add about that? If I were listening in and I thought, "Well, gee, this sounds like a model that would fit us," what uh, what would you attribute to your success other than being available? I mean, you mentioned that, I've, not to diminish the importance of that, but is there another key component to that? I guess it's the education and the availability.
2: Well, e- education at multiple levels and taking advantage of opportunities and requests whether that's going and giving a 1 hour talk at rotary or whether that's what I did via zoom a few months ago with the state nursing convention or doing this or you know any opportunity never turning down a television interview or not turning down radio chance having your name out there making sure people realize you're available, you're knowledgeable, and it builds your reputation. And you know, nothing to me substitutes for the one-on-one communication between healthcare providers and your ability to always fine-tune your bedside manner. That's the other thing. All of us have or a lot of us have experienced going to a provider, whether it be a dentist or whether it's a podiatrist or a doc or anybody where they're aloof or they talk over your head or they don't seem to care or they seem incompetent and they don't get your confidence. So you have to look back as a model and say, am I on time enough? Am I delivering the information to the patients that they need to, to have confidence in you and, get you and do what you need them to do. It's like the tough talks with the diabetics. Well, why are you eating Cheetos and Oreos all day while you're looking at a foot infection? You know, those kind of educational opportunities build reputation. So it's this whole combination in, in this world of texting, um we got to be careful even between physicians because misinformation and it's too easy to get out of doing things that way so i i think i got asked to talk at the american college of physicians meeting for wyoming last year and it had to be done by zoom and i only talked i think there were only 10 people on the call so what i gave a lecture guess what They heard about the lecture, and now I've been asked to do it this year again, and there'll be a lot more people there. That's the business model. And it doesn't take a lot of my time, and it's a compliment to be asked. You have to have that attitude of, hey, it's, yeah, okay, I don't really want to spend my Sunday evening working on a lecture, but one, it helps my education. Two, it helps my community or state. Three, it can be fun. And four, it's part of my business model.
1: Yeah, and it's the right thing to do. As simple as that. It's, 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 uh, it's generous and, um, again, I, I don't know how to phrase it any better than that. It's the right thing to do. Uh, well, Mark, it's been uh, a, a delight to talk to you again and learn a little bit more about some of that philosophy of yours, and I appreciate you sharing all of that with our listeners. Um, I, I would love to have you back on and we can talk about uh, maybe some of the strategies that you could share with what you've done over the last thirty years of building that successful
2: practice there. Be glad to do that. I've enjoyed this. It's it's fun to talk about, and it makes me look back and think about what worked and what didn't work. And uh, it's challenging. And and we're a dinosaur now, right? We're a still a big private practice. So there's a lot of interesting challenges. <laughs> That weren't even there 20 or 30 years ago.
1: I, I remember that uh, conversation we had many years ago. I said, "Mark, this first recruit's going to be the toughest one." <laughs> well, I don't know that they got a whole lot easier, but maybe incrementally they did over a period of time. But it's been a it's been a pleasure to uh, to participate. Uh, or to help out in any measure to help you build that that dynasty that you've got there. Really, you know, you're talking about your legacy. I don't put, play a part in that, but the fact is, the matter that you're doing the right thing, and this is great information, a great story for others to to emulate.
2: And John, you, I, I got to tell you, you've played a huge role in this because you helped me grow my practice. You worked with me as a colleague and a friend. You got to know me, and you got good docs in here that have made a huge difference. And most of, I mean, you're never going to be hundred percent on who ends up staying in your practice. Anybody that says they can do that, run away from them, but we've had great success and the docs are planted here. And so that's the other part of this is that when you're growing a practice and trying to recruit to a tough rural area, you have to have expertise like yours, to get them here, and that's you played a big role in this. I you really have.
1: Well, thanks for saying that. Um, it is a source of pride when you can do that. And you know, I'll never be a clinician, and uh, a little bit of knowledge is it can be a dangerous thing. But you know, you and I have become friends over over the years, and it it's it's uh, rewarding to me at a number of levels to help see your practice continue to grow and thrive, and to, you know, by extension through your care and your leadership. And the physicians and providers and the nurses that you work with that have in your practice are able to take care of the people there in Wyoming. Yeah,
2: you know, the message is stay enthusiastic and stay humble. And that's what you got to do and be available. And, and then you're successful. I think that's true in most businesses, really.
1: Yeah. And keep learning. All of that's great advice. Mark, stay well. Watch out for the errant flies. Uh... <laughs> And uh, let's, let's get together again, and if you're ever out this way, uh, a beer, glass of wine, uh, or a sparkling water or something. But I would like to schedule something with you here soon, and we'll talk a little bit more.
2: Sure. I like this. This would be fun.
1: All right. Great. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye
0: thank you to all our listeners. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes air, make sure to hit that subscribe button. And a big thank you to Pacific Companies. Without you guys, this podcast could not be possible. If you would like to be a guest, go to www.pacificcompanies.com. Thank you.